Hello everybody, thanks for tuning in to Moving Up the Ladder, a show that gives you some knowledge and insight into the potential success of your career or business, no matter what part of the employment spectrum you fall on. With LocalJobNetwork.com Radio, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Today we continue our venture into Manpower Group's top 10 toughest jobs to fill, and our focus for this show is engineering. Where is the disconnect and how can companies find the talent they need to do the job well? Talking to us from Texas about this important issue is the president of the National Society of Engineers, Dan Whitliff. Dan is also a professional engineer himself with a diverse background and plenty of experience to drop some knowledge on us today. Dan, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks, Tim. It's, it's good to be here um, the, uh, representing the National Society of Professional Engineers. And before we jump into sort of the nuts and bolts here, if you could give people an idea of your experience and uh, a little bit about your organization as well. Well, in the first place, I'm a licensed professional engineer in Texas and Tennessee. Uh, licensed as a mechanical engineer, which is my undergraduate uh, education, and an environmental engineer. I practice in both those areas and, enter- and do energy projects, uh, the environmental permitting and uh, regulatory affairs in the state of Texas. My experience is uh, as I had a 30-year military career, nine active, 21 reserve, where I uh, got involved in a lot of different things, including communications, uh, environmental engineering, as well as civil engineering and munitions. And um, I also worked in industry, in the power industry, as a power plant engineer and environmental manager for an electric utilities, uh, electric utility company, gas coal, oil, uh, fired power plants. Also worked in government as the chief engineer for the Texas uh, Environmental Agency. And um, I've been in consulting now for about 12 years. And uh, as far as NSPE goes, uh, NSPE is the National Society of Professional Engineers. We're an organization of about 35,000 licensed professional engineers across the country who practice for the public and uh, who are licensed by their individual states to engage in that practice. There are, well, probably another two to 4,000 student and uh, non-professional engineers. We refer to them as the engineer wannabes. They're on a licensure. They're they're on a licensure track. They're degreed engineers. They just don't have their license yet. Sure. So they're, they're, Every bit as competent as as, uh, as the PE, they just haven't gone through that last little bit of the of the process and getting their license. Yeah, and obviously, you know, describing your some of your background and your your experience in the different areas will give people an idea of where you're coming from as well with this. Um, you know, before we really get into maybe the concerns and issues in, on this topic. Is there a general way to describe what an engineer is? Because not everyone out there is going to have that knowledge. And I know it's tough because you have different types, you know, mechanical, electrical, uh, that sort of thing. But what's a, what's a good way to sort of wrap up the idea of, of what an engineer truly is? Well, I think that first and foremost, uh, the engineer is a problem solver. Mm. Basically, what you're doing is helping people solve problems that are complicated and technically sophisticated uh, when they don't have the tools or the ability or the background to to do those. So you're helping people who can't do this for themselves. And you're harnessing the physical world to the betterment of mankind's as-built environment uh, and, a, and generally raising the quality of life, not only in the United States, but around the world. So then based on your knowledge and experience, obviously, 
we're looking for answers here. So what is at the heart of engineering being one of the toughest positions to fill? And, and recently, it seems like it's a current, uh, it's a constant problem, rather. What, what's at the heart of all this? It's called supply and demand. <laughs> the supply isn't up to the demand. And it has to do with, at its roots, that when you come to engineering school, you have to be fully prepared. You mm. can't go into some kind of remedial, let's uh, let's sort of uh, get someone up to pace. You have to come prepared, which means you have to have the advanced mathematics already. You have to have the, the science foundation already. And you have to have good communicative skills. So you have a whole bunch of things that make it to where you have to start earlier. Now, and we can talk about everybody ought to be everything that they, anything they want to be mm-hmm. in our country. And, and while that's true in the main, if, if you haven't prepared yourself to go to college into engineering school, you're not going to get into engineering school. It's just, it doesn't work that way. And typically where we're taking our, our feedstock for engineering programs is we're taking it out of the top 10% and the next 10%. Mm-hmm. Most, but if you were looking at the demographics, I would submit that it's probably 75 to 80% is coming out of that top 10%. The other 20 to 25% is coming out of the next 10%. And, and these students are very bright and very um, able to pick and choose from just anywhere or anything they want to do. Uh, some have a bent towards business, uh, but most of these folks could qualify to go to law school. They could go to qualify to go to medical school. So engineering is, in, is competing with those, those people for seats in, in our classrooms. And uh, the fact that... Um, Quite frankly, whenever whenever I came to, to my alma mater, SMU, I was 17 years old, somewhat immature, and uh, I was top 10% of my class, <laughs> and I thought I was all that in a bag of chips. I got off to SMU and realized uh, I wasn't as ready for this as I thought I was, mm-hmm. and quite frankly, I, I felt stupid almost from the day one. Till the time, not till I graduated, it was sort of like midway through my five-year career that I started feeling smart again. But, um, you know, these people can make good grades in, in anything they want to choose. And to be in engineering, they almost have to be willing to say, I'm going to make B's now, or I'm going to make B's and A's instead of straight A's. So you have to be committed. So we have a pretty high attrition rate in engineering, and that's been one of the focuses of of, uh, engineering educators is how to screen it better to make sure that the people you get are really committed and motivated to do engineering and that have the skill set to stay. And then the next piece is they they do more mentoring and more uh, over-the-shoulder coaching so that you don't have the high attrition rates that, that you did whenever I was in undergraduate school. So with all that in mind, is is this a, a reputation thing where, where people aren't looking into going into engineering? Is it is it simply uh, um, the fact that 
as you said, maybe you're competing with all these different industries. Um, maybe people aren't as interested in the sciences and math sort of aspect of it. What, what exactly can you pinpoint specifically why it's becoming that struggle or why it has been that struggle, especially in terms of, as you talk about, finding this, this top talent or, or these, these students that you're just discussing? Well, and let's let's go let's go back to the the facts. I mean, uh, you and I were talking earlier on about sort of numbers and statistics. And uh, right now, we have over three hundred million people living in the United States, and there are two and a half million or so degreed engineers living in the United States. Mm-hmm. Many of those, oddly, not oddly enough, but coincidentally, come from overseas and are working here. The professional engineers licensed in the in the country, uh, somewhere around a half a million. In order to be a professional engineer, you needed to have a degree in engineering, if that's the way you looked at it, mm-hmm. and that was your universe of people to get a license. Typically, only about twenty percent to twenty five percent of the degreed engineers are getting licensed. That said, you still are dealing with something on the order of less than one percent of the population has a degree in engineering. So there's not a lot of role models to go around. Mm-hmm. And typically what, what you end up with is, is we, don't, we don't have a good uh, media face. Um, <laughs> if, for instance, whenever I was uh, in my 20s, I remember a movie called The Towering Inferno. And uh, whenever everybody was oohing and aahing oohing and oohing over the building and having the big party, they were, it was all in the lap of the architect who's the grand uh, artist in putting this all together. And the only time that they called on the engineer was whenever they realized they needed to know if the fire suppression system was going to work. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit late whenever the darn thing's on fire. Right. The bottom line is, is that there are not as many faces to young people who are looking for a career in engineering. And quite honestly, when you look at high school teachers, high school counselors, middle school, in fact, we have to start in middle school. Mm-hmm. Our kids don't come to, to graduate as seniors and go to engineering school unless they've had good mentoring in middle school. And we have a lot of programs in NSPE like Engineers Week, Math Counts, Junior Engineer Society, uh, a lot of other different programs. We have a K-12 through uh, educational program to to get the message out. The problem is if there's not a lot of role reinforcement in their in their family, either a parent or an uncle or some close relative or a counselor that really is familiar with what's going on in, in, in uh, our industry, what you have is a disconnect and, and uh, it doesn't become in, in the fore of their thinking about professional and career choices. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how I would kind of come to it. You got to have that strong mentoring out in the in the field, because quite frankly, you you can tell people this is fun and it's great and all of that, but to tell them it's not hard work or that it's a uh, it's a lot easier than what people think is uh, I think selling somebody a bag of goods. You really have to you have to be honest with folks. Sure. It is tough. It is hard. But the joy, the real pleasure I get, uh, even now that I'm in my 60s, is I get a lot of joy out of helping people solve things and fix things that they can't do themselves. It's a great place to be. You you have such a, a reward in your life that you're able to help move society along. Now, you know, you mentioned, obviously, a lot of this idea of getting to kids really early and, and getting these ideas and they need a certain education. Could you be you know specific in terms of 
what they really need in in high school even, uh, what level exactly they have to be at because maybe people have thought about it but don't know these things ahead of time. Um, What what do you point to? What do they really have to be at in terms of their education even before entering college? Well, and this is the the odd thing is you're going to hear a lot of engineers say it's it's all about the math and it's all about the science. Mm -hmm. And I'd say it's all about that and, and I'm going to do that (laughs) Coke commercial and, it's about math and science. You have to start with eighth grade algebra and uh, eighth grade science and build on that, build on that, build on that, and finish with certainly four or five years of uh, mathematics that will get you to a place where you have calculus, trig, and analytic geometry rolled up into your senior courses. Then on the uh, the side of, of the sciences, you need a general physical science, you need chemistry, biology, and physics, and you don't need to take the cookbook version. You need to take the stuff that's got all the math with it because that's what you're going to see in, in the first two years of college is a lot of math mm-hmm. associated with the science. The thing that you're probably going to f- be surprised at whenever I start talking about what a, what does an engineer need I'd say they need to take all of the English and communication skills that they can possibly courses like journalism and speech and and maybe even drama because so much of what we engineers do in in today's society, uh, the day is gone whenever somebody can walk into a room and wave their credential around and say, I'm the engineer, trust me. Mm. They don't believe that any more than there's a man in the moon eating cream cheese. (laughs) They want to know that you understand, the engineer understands what the public needs and what they value and what they want and the context into which the engineer is going to design this project for for them or someone uh, that's trying to build in their community. So communications, being able to talk to people, being able to communicate in writing is important because that's the one that that's the leave behind. That's what everybody's going to look at. And uh, journalism was a great preparation for me because it taught me how to write in inverse pyramid and, and communicate very succinctly on issues. The speech, debate, those are important, uh, not only for lawyers and for politicians, they're important for engineers because you have to go to a city council meeting, you have to be able to respond to people on a, on a basis that they understand. So. Those are the kinds of things that I would say that you, you got to have. Of course, I mean, the other core curriculum and don't don't slack off and take a non-AP class when you can take an AP class. Mm-hmm. Uh, because even if you don't get as good a grade, uh, you'll have learned a lot more, sure. I think. And it is interesting you bring up the point of, of the communication side of it because you're right. I think people just think so much in the, the nuts and bolts of being in the math and sciences. So I, I think that's a good point to bring up. Now, if we do look a little more into the the skills involved and uh, I mean, maybe people have advanced to a stage or they're getting close to graduating, what sort of things are focused upon in terms of what are essential skills and some of the training that's really necessary to be effective and to be attractive really to employers? Wow, that's a pretty tall order because everything that you do, whenever you when you talk about a job, has to be in terms of what that specific job requires. Sure, uh, engineers are they serve as project managers, they serve as designers, they serve as um, technical experts, they serve in a multitude of roles that include operations, maintenance, and construction of the as-built environment. So what you have is a lot of places where they fit, 
and what specifically that that employer is going to rely upon depend upon the needs of the job. Uh, quite frankly, now here's something that maybe your, your listeners haven't thought of, but by the time it's posted, it's filled. Hmm. So your your trick is don't be chasing every job posting. Make it to where you're de- establishing a relationship with these potential employers of engineers. And then make sure they have your resume. Make sure you go by to see them. Call them if you can't go by to see them. Email is a horrible uh, communications device if you're looking to establish relationships. Mm-hmm. Because any employment contract or any sort of relationship where you're bringing a person into your company is a, is a big act of trust. And they have to have a lot of confidence that you're going to be able to do the job for which you're being hired. Because if you don't, if you're not, then you're going to be unhappy and the employer is going to be unhappy. Neither of which works to your advantage if you're looking to to grow in the professional world. But that's in terms of what is the employer looking for? He's obviously, he, she is obviously looking for somebody with some analytical ability. Because that's the foremost thing that you get taught in engineering school is a very rigorous and disciplined thought process for thinking through the problem, looking at the various facts, looking at the various alternative solutions, uh, weighing the pros and cons, and then doing cost analysis, and then coming up with the solution that is Maybe not the maximum solution, but the optimum solution with all the different factors you have to consider. Uh, one of the things we engineers are really good at is putting in these matrices, which is basically a, a table mm-hmm. with all these weighting factors. And it's a spreadsheet to where you can, well, if I adjust the weighting factor this much, then I get this different outcome. And so <laughs> we do a lot of sensitivity analysis that way to make sure we're not making bad assumptions. But yeah, analytical thought is one. If you're if you're going to be a project manager, for example, the generic term people skills is an important thing. But at uh, 25 years old, 22 years old, how many how much in the way of people skills can you really focus on? Right. Well, a lot of that comes down to personal posture, how you present yourself. Uh, I know that you were, you were uh, thinking about uh, uh, interviews. What are the typical interviews? Well, engineering companies are typically very conservative in their – they don't spend people's money foolishly. They, they want to make sure there's a reason for doing everything and that they are very conscious that they're being safe and protective of the public health. Well, if you come into an interview, I promise you I've seen this happen. I've seen people come up to an interview – thinking that they were dressing for their uh, college senior design class. They had uh, flip-flops and uh, <laughs> and holy jeans and uh, an equally holy T-shirt with uh, ACDC or Nirvana <laughs> or Bon Jovi on it. You don't show up for an interview looking like that. Right. You got to dress for the job. Not only the job you want, you got to dress for the job that you, you want in the future. If you want to be a leader, you got to dress like a leader. Does that mean you need to wear a tux to an interview? No, but you need to wear a coat and tie if you're a guy. For the gal, uh, for the ladies in the audience, when you show up for an interview, if you're going to an engineering company, do not wear a tight skirt. (laughs) Do not wear one that's above the knees. 
wear it at the knees or below, but make, you know, it's an interview. It's not a prom date. And it's funny that you bring that stuff up because it seems like obviously this goes across industries that, uh, I mean, we've heard various stories of the same type of thing. It doesn't matter, uh, you know, if it's a casual position or not, that you need to show that you're going to be a professional and take this thing seriously. So it's interesting that you bring up the exact same things that we'd hear from, like I said, every other industry for the most part. Well, and that's the way it is. I mean, uh, I look at anybody that I hire or that works under my supervision and they list me as a reference. I want the I want the person that's looking at that to know that that meant something. That this person is ready to do the job when they walk in the door, and that they know how to do the job, and that they know how to conduct themselves. And to me, sometimes what we do is we we let them skate because we don't want to appear to be harsh. Mm-hmm. And I had an intern one time that came into my office, very, very similar to the conditions I just stated. And uh, I said, uh, "This, you know this is a professional office, right? And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, did anybody tell you about how to dress for the office? And, and I told him I expected a collared, a collared shirt and jeans that didn't have holes in them. <laughs> and I said, they need to be clean, and I, you need to wear closed-toed shoes. So <laughs> I sent him home. And I said, don't come back till you get that squared away. <laughs> and he did. He got it done. I mean, he was ready. And then... The next time he showed up, I asked him into my office, and he came in, sat down in the chair. Great kid. He's very smart. I said, uh, did you know exactly what I was going to tell you before you came in here? He said, no. Are you uh, capable to, to have a, a photo, uh, identic or photographic memory that you could just remember in great detail everything I'm going to say? He said, no, I don't have that. And I said, well, then where's your writing implement and where's your paper to write it down on so that you can take back what I'm asking you to do? And so he never came into my office after that without the paper and the pencil. He was ready to go. But it's that whole notion. And then he was spreading that around the office about this is the culture. This is what we need to do. So you get them, you, get them, you train them, and you make sure that you have standards. And I think people respect it. They respect having standards because they want to be part of a solid and proud profession that does all these wonderful things, and they want to be a credit to it. So let's start on the on the right foot. You know, in, in discussing the various aspects of this then, when you look at this, I mean, is there a, a really good idea as to how to fix this? I, I mean, I know, again, we go back to the idea of, of education and in and getting people into it from that point of view, is there a thought to trying to target people who are in other fields and, and can they get the education to use maybe some transferable skills into engineering? Is that is that even a strategy that would be feasible? Is that something that's looked into? Because the idea here is how, how can we fix this essentially? And I'm sure you guys have, have been looking into that and, and racking your brains for it. But for people listening who maybe aren't in the field or have thought about it, that sort of thing, what can what can be said or done to really help this disconnect? Well, I think that the flow isn't the way that you and I would like it. It's not from other fields into engineering. Mm-hmm. It's from engineering into other fields. Okay. Uh, there's a, a survey out that says, and it's the way a lot of um, universities and colleges are attracting young people into engineering as undergraduates is they're saying engineering is the new liberal arts degree. Hmm. This provides you with a sound foundation for what what promises to be an extremely technical and technologically driven environment for the future. If you want to be able to succeed, this is your 
entree to other professions. Law, I mean, a lot of people go to engineering school and then go on to law. Wow. Uh, they go to engineering school and go into med- medical school or mm-hmm. de- uh, dentistry. In fact, my dentist, when I was a kid, made, made a lot of comments that he was a petroleum engineer, <laughs> then got his dental degree, and he said, that's all I'm doing is still drilling. I'm just a different place. <laughs> the bottom line is, is that engineering is the sound foundation and that not everybody is going to want to stay in engineering their whole career. And I think some of that has to do with us in the profession and how we treat and handle and grow and mature and develop the feedstock. Once they leave the university, now they're in our hands. And um, we do get a chance to really make it wonderful and exciting. But quite often, a lot of the entry jobs in engineering are kind of, well, an old term that we used to use in the military was grunt jobs. Mm. They're tedious and they're time-consuming, but because you don't know... You really don't know as much as you think you do whenever you get your engineering degree and you got to go through that experience. It makes sense that that you have some of these tedious jobs. There's an impatience on the part of a lot of young people that that putting up with that is not it's not their nature. They haven't had to wait. They haven't had to do that. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that's that's, I think, a reasonable fact. So what we we as employers and and. the, the gray hairs of the profession, we have to figure out ways to make it exciting and attractive to young people to see that there is this excitement and this uh, um, tremendous impact that we have on our fellow persons in, in, in society, that it's worthwhile to stay in it. I mean, because we're paying them a heck of a lot of money. <laughs> a lot of our engineers are starting out in the in the high 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. right out of school, no experience. Right. It took me a lot of years to make $50,000. <laughs> so I'm looking at it from a standpoint of we need them, we want them. Well, we might as well treat them uh, in a way that keeps them around and, and keeps them growing and developing. So I think that we can do it. We just have to be better at it. You know, and, and lastly, I mean, we are getting really low on time here, but I mean, what would be your pitch if you were an employer? I mean, you talk about, you know, trying to make it exciting and you talk about the, the pay obviously being very nice out of uh, coming right out of school. But I mean, is there anything in particular you can point to or you would suggest an employer uh, or the industry in general really focusing on to keep people interested and, and get more of these students, you know, staying in that industry as opposed to filtering off to, to other ones, kind of like you mentioned, is there a, a certain focus that that can be uh, pointed to, or an idea that can, in your mind, really help with a situation? Well, I think that when talk when you're talking to engineers, the thing that they believe they can do right out of school is take the lead on something, mm. and maybe they can, and maybe they can't. But if you don't try them, how do you know? So the trick is is to make sure that you get them involved in a design or a, uh, the operations, the maintenance, the work with the financial community. Let them do a cradle-to-grave project. That's how I learned mm-hmm. is uh, cradle-to-grave means you start out with a concept. Basically, somebody gives you a problem, and then they say, well, I got this problem. I need it fixed. Well, then give them the latitude to, to walk down that solution then, then once they come up with a solution that you buy off on, make them the point person for getting it done. Now, it's a little project at first, or a smaller one by most experienced seasoned uh, engineer standards, but it's their own baby. They get to take it all the way through. 
because what you're growing in the in the end game is you're growing somebody that can do that on a much bigger project with all the different disciplines involved, the civils, the electricals, the mechanicals, the environmentals, the chemicals, the industrials, all these different engineers that are out there. You got to be able to orchestrate them like a, a fine symphony conductor. <laughs> and if if you don't, if you haven't done that on a small scale, it's a little tough to make the leap to a big project doing it for the first time. So that's what I would do is give, give them smaller projects that they get to take the whole thing cradle to grave. And then they're, they're responsible for the whole thing. And then that gives them the confidence that they can handle the whole deal and understand what other people are supposed to be doing. That, that to me is, is one of the good ways to do it. Well, and, you know, again, you have a great perspective on it and you've had the diverse background and the different experiences. So uh, hopefully people do take some of those ideas to heart and use them to help, as I said, sort of bridge the gap and, and find a, a connection between those that are looking and those that are, uh, uh, you know, can do the job but maybe are going off into different areas. Unfortunately, we are out of time here on Moving Up the Ladder. But again, I hope this show in some way it will help individuals out there maybe looking into getting into engineering and as well as employers who are trying to find that talent or find the right mix of, uh, of people to bring in. Our expert in the field has been Dan Whitliff, president of the National Society of Engineers. Dan, where would people be able to find out about your organization? Uh, they can go to www.nspe, that's uh, November Sierra Papa Echo, nspe.org. Well, again, thank you for giving us uh, all of your insight today on this topic. Thank you very much, Tim. My pleasure. Of course, it's always great to hear from you, the listeners, as well. So please drop us an email with comments and suggestions to ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. Wishing you success in all your endeavors. I'm Tim Muma. You've been listening to localjobnetwork.com radio.